Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Kelda. I'm William Ray. Welcome to Black Sheep. Colonel Charles Turner had one of the best jobs of World War I, commander of the Motuihe Island internment camp right in the middle of the Hauraki Gulf. The words internment camp usually bring up images of searchlights, barbed wire, places where you lock up people you think might be dangerous to the war effort. But Motuihe wasn't that kind of camp. Here's an extract from a book describing it. On the beaches, the interns had constructed a gazebo out of manuka plants, and on fine days they would head down there to contemplate the azure waters of the Hauraki Gulf. They were given the run of the island until late in the evening, fishing, cooking in the prisoner's own private bakery, gardening, picking fruit, and gathering oysters were all encouraged. Sounds awesome, right? What kind of prisoner gets to live in a place like that? The German governor of German Samoa and the chief um, judge of German Samoa. So he, he was in charge of very high-ranking people. This is James Bade. He's a professor at Auckland University who specialises in German-New Zealand relations. And, like he said, Motuihe held the upper crust of prisoners. Low-ranking internees often ended up in places like Soames Island, where they faced beatings, verbal abuse, freezing cold, dodgy food. Motuihe was the polar opposite. And people who were interned on Soames Island and then moved to Motuihe said it was like moving from hell to heaven. Mm. <laughs> it was very relaxed, so they could do whatever they liked during the day around the island, and they were also allowed every now and then to go to, to Auckland to do their shopping. On December 13th, 1917, Colonel Turner was returning to Motuihe from one of those shopping trips on the camp's motor launch, the Pearl. He'd brought his daughter along with him and he was probably expecting to have a good time the next day showing her around the island. Instead, he was about to find himself responsible for what Prime Minister William Massey described as the most regrettable thing that has happened since the war began. Presumably, he meant the most regrettable thing that had happened in New Zealand, because, you know, there was also some pretty regrettable stuff going on on the Western Front at the time. Turner and his daughter walked up to the camp, leaving some of the prisoners at the wharf to tie up the pearl. Late in the afternoon, he went to roll call. Eleven of the prisoners were absent. But Turner wasn't worried. Some of them had given excuses in advance, and like we said, Motuihe was a pretty relaxed kind of place. Just after 7pm, Colonel Turner got a call on an internal phone line. Yes? It was the camp sergeant major, and he was ringing with bad news. The Pearl, the camp's motor launch, had vanished and the camp's small dinghy had been spotted half-sunk along the coast. Turner picked up the phone again to ring headquarters in Auckland. The line was dead. What was worse, 
the 11 prisoners missing from roll call were nowhere to be found. Among the missing was the camp's most important prisoner, Count Felix von Luckner. Von Luckner wasn't like the other prisoners. This wasn't some high-ranking bureaucrat. Von Luckner was a commander in the German Navy. In the last year and a half, he'd sunk more than a dozen Allied ships. The story of Felix von Luckner's escape from Motuihe is legendary. We're going to get into all the twists and turns of it a bit later on in this episode. But that escape was just one chapter of a life story which feels like it's ripped from a Hollywood blockbuster. Von Luckner was a child of aristocracy who ran away to sea. He fought in the biggest naval battle of the First World War. He captained the last square-rigged sailing ship ever to be used in combat. He sailed 2,000 miles across the Pacific Ocean in a lifeboat. He single-handedly saved his hometown from destruction during World War II, and he once punched a member of the Gestapo straight in the face. If you think about sort of Pirates of the Caribbean and things like that, you know, it's it's on that scale of just sort of absurd, weird adventure. But it's it's all real. This is it's true. This is Sam Jefferson, the editor of the Sailing Today magazine in the UK. He wrote a book on von Luckner, which is titled The Sea Devil. Earlier on, you heard from Professor James Bade, who, funnily enough, also wrote a book called The Sea Devil. It was a popular nickname von Luckner won in the war. The most amazing thing is that he became such a folk hero here, against all odds. If you think about it, if you think about 1917, and as I said, all those lists of casualties. And here he is, a German, you know, the terrible enemy, who, according to the propaganda, were doing the most terrible things to people that he became such a a folk hero. It's just amazing that that happened that way. Felix von Luckner was born in June 1881. He came from a family of military aristocrats. In fact, his great-grandfather had been the Marshal of France after the Franco-Prussian War in the late 1700s, and he was later guillotined in the French Revolution. Felix didn't seem to enjoy life as a young aristocrat, though. Here's how he put it in his autobiography. School was a horrid institution, and as far as I was concerned, its abolition would solve all my problems. <laughs> I wanted to become a sailor and go to America and visit my hero, Buffalo Bill. So, at 13 years old, Felix ran away from his home and jumped on a Russian sailing ship. It wasn't exactly the romantic experience he'd dreamed of. His first job was mucking out the ship's pigsty. The sewage was so deep that it filled my shoes. I had only two pairs of trousers. Soap and water were not to be wasted, so I grew filthier than the pigs. Everyone kicked me because I looked like a pig and smelled like one. For food, I had to go around and eat what the sailors left on their plates. They said that was the way pigs were fed. But von Luckner stuck with it. According to his autobiography, he spent the next few years getting into adventures all over the world. He says he was swept overboard and only rescued after he grabbed the leg of an albatross that was trying to peck him to death. 
He says he spent six days in an open boat after his ship sank in a storm. He says he worked as a kangaroo hunter and a lighthouse keeper and a magician and a soldier in the Mexican army. Some of these stories were probably made up, but others were probably true. Life as a sailor in the late 1800s was a dramatic and dangerous business, particularly on the old square-rigged sailing ships where von Luckner cut his teeth as a sailor. Here's Sam Jefferson. There was the final fling of tall ships really as a commercial entity back then. So um, they were undermanned, very hard work, uh, very dangerous work because you're going up the rigging, you're not tied on in any way, you've just got to hold on basically. Uh, and the people did die quite regularly on them. He is very badly injured himself at, at some at one stage. Yes, he kind of hits rock bottom. I think when he's uh, ends up in Jamaica, sort of he's had this injury, so he's limping around. I think he also gets into the culture, the sailors' culture, a little bit too much as well. So you know, when you get to a port, you've lived a very simple life while you've been at sea, and then you just blow all your money on booze. So, von Luckner took a bad fall from the rigging and ends up sitting on a beach in Jamaica with a broken leg and no money. He's begging for food, unshaven, unwashed, miserable. But just as he hit rock bottom, von Luckner saw something that changed his life. A beautiful white warship appeared over the horizon. It was the SMS Panther, a 66-metre-long German Navy gunboat. Some of the Panther's sailors took pity on this fellow German far from home, gave him some food, got him some new clothes and a haircut. It was a moment of inspiration. Von Luckner sailed back to Germany and enlisted to train as an officer in the Navy. He returned home to his parents. It was the first time they'd seen him in eight years. Presumably they must have given him up for dead. But by the time they saw him, he wasn't Felix the roving adventurer anymore. Now he was Naval Lieutenant von Luckner of the German Imperial Navy. Actually, he was usually known as Count von Luckner, thanks to his aristocratic heritage. And that heritage greased the tracks, so von Luckner rose rapidly through the ranks. As he was rising, he would have seen the growing tensions between the great powers of Europe and the eruption of violence when that tension finally broke in 1914. Now, when most of us think about World War I, we think about a land war, trenches, barbed wire, artillery, machine guns. In terms of the naval forces, that was a stalemate, essentially. Um, they, would, they both just sat there with these huge fleets and there were a few skirmishes, but they didn't ever clash in a meaningful way. Um, so it was more about trade mm. and blockades. Just to be super clear, there were a couple of big naval battles in World War I, but it was nothing like the level of death and destruction happening in the trenches. As Sam Jefferson said, the biggest role naval forces played in the war was the British blockade, which stopped critical supplies from reaching Germany from overseas. Official statistics say starvation contributed to the deaths of nearly 763 
1,000 German civilians during the war. Although we should say those numbers are pretty hotly contested by historians. The German Navy did all it could to break the blockade surrounding their coastline. Von Luckner himself served in the Battle of Jutland in 1916. This was by far the largest naval conflict of World War I. But as Sam said, it was mostly a stalemate. The best the German Navy could do was raid Allied transport ships in the Atlantic. Raiders to them were extremely important in two ways. Firstly, the morale side of it. Shipping didn't feel safe and the Allies were demoralised by losses. These raiders were often submarines. The infamous U-boats which snuck through the British blockade underwater. But there was another way to get through that blockade. Camouflage. This is where von Luckner comes back into our story. After the Battle of Jutland, he was summoned to Berlin to receive a top-secret assignment. He was ordered to take command of a very special ship. SMS Zeadler. That's German for Sea Eagle. The Zeadler was an old, square-rigged, sailing ship. Let's just pause for a minute to acknowledge how ridiculous this is. We're in World War I. This is a conflict with airplanes, tanks, battleships, submarines. The idea of using a sailing ship in this war was ludicrous. But also, it was the last thing the Allies would suspect. The plan was to disguise this German sailing ship as a Norwegian lumber transport and have it sail through the blockade in plain sight. Von Luckner was the perfect man for the job. He had plenty of experience on tall sailing ships, plus this mission appealed to his personality. So it's an incredibly romantic mission, really, this concept of taking an old sailing ship and arming it but disguising it and so you sort of you become the underdog and you're beating the odds uh, so I can definitely see why it appealed to him and they go to extraordinary lengths to camouflage this ship like it almost sounds like it's kind of a transformer with sort of you know um, bits of bulkhead which sort of fall away to expose guns and all you know all of the secret compartments and all this kind of stuff I mean it's incredible I mean it's so elaborate I mean it, yes it does sound like fiction but I mean, it wasn't. I mean, they, they they did go to those efforts to get one raider out by using all these remarkable. I mean, they had a sort of a lift shaft down into the into the hold where they could hide all the men. And and there's a level of spycraft here too because they have to sort of falsify all the logbooks because they know they're going to be in- inspected. And they there's even one story, and I, I know it's sort of been disputed whether this is true that. Um, Von Luckner convinces one of the sort of younger sailors to dress up as if he's a Norwegian sailor's wife to sort of complete the illusion. Absolutely, yeah. And he says that this is part of the sort of ruse is to have this wife. But, I mean, it seems a very elaborate scheme. Um, But nothing's out of the question. I mean, there is a photo of someone dressed up, you know, with him as as his wife. So... Why not? I mean, they just seem to be sort of, in a strange way, sort of enjoying themselves, just sort of amateur dramatic sort of thing. And the crazy thing is, it worked. The Zayadla sailed straight through the infamous British blockade without ever raising an eyebrow. Now, it was time for action. Usually it went something like this. 
First, the Zayadla's crew would spot a likely-looking cargo ship on the horizon. They would sail closer, sending a signal saying they wanted to check their chronometer. Knowing the time's super important in navigation, so ships often check their timepieces against other ships. Von Luckner would take the Zayadla closer and closer until they were in point-blank range. The trap was sprung. German troops would run up onto the deck carrying rifles and machine guns. A piece of the bulkhead would fall away to reveal a naval gun and a German flag was hoisted up the mast. Their victim had no option but to surrender. In six months, the Zayadla used these tactics to capture 11 Allied ships, destroying more than 40,000 tonnes of cargo. But this wasn't just about disrupting Allied supply lines. The Zayadla was also a vital tool in a war of propaganda. Because it was such a long war, morale on both sides just was plummeting all the time. So it was really important to keep that up and um, to win the propaganda war was, was important. Unfortunately, the German Navy had committed quite a few own goals in this war. The most famous was the sinking of the Lusitania, a British ocean liner which was torpedoed by a German U-boat with the loss of more than a 1,000 lives. The deaths of US citizens aboard that ship were a big part of what dragged America into the war. Winston Churchill wrote about it like this. In spite of all its horror, we must regard the sinking of the Lusitania as an event most important and favourable for the Allies. The poor babies who perished in the ocean struck a blow at German power more deadly than could have been achieved by the sacrifice of 100,000 men. The problem was U-boats relied totally on stealth for their success. If they surfaced, they were completely helpless. This meant they didn't have the option of letting their victims surrender. They just had to fire the torpedoes without warning. The Germans realised this was a bad look, but they had to do something to counter the British blockade. The Zayadla was a perfect solution. Unlike the U-boats, it could give its victims the chance to surrender. In fact, through its entire tour of duty, the Zayadla only ever killed one person, a 16-year-old apprentice who was hit by shrapnel after his ship refused to stop for the Zayadla. And von Luckner went out of his way to play up his chivalry and mercy. It was a bizarre trip with, I mean, what the other captains thought of the ships, of their ship, which had just been destroyed, to get on this boat that was full of people being charming to them. It must have just been far from what they were expecting from the sort of people who put the fear of God into them about the Germans. He greeted his captors with bouquets made from paper flowers. He treated them to champagne dinners with live music. He even made sure the ship's cats had been taken on board before giving the order to sink a captured vessel. This all made a major impression on the captives. Here's what one captured British captain had to say about his time on the Zayadla. On the whole, I do not think there was one man who was a prisoner of war on the radar who can complain about the fairness of Commander Felix von Luckner. He was a gentleman of the high seas. 
Another captive, a young American woman called Gladys Taylor, was even more positive. They treated me like a fairy princess. Not a word that hurt, not a look that frightened, not an act that worried me. From the count of the humblest sailor, their chivalry was a marvelous thing. When those captives were finally released, these testimonials totally undermined the image of Germans as brutal, baby-killing monsters. I mean, it was a drop in the ocean in terms of the wider propaganda war, but it was still something. Anyway, the honeymoon couldn't last forever. The Zeadler finally came unstuck when they snuck up on the wrong ship, a Danish vessel called the Viking. Because Denmark was a neutral country, von Luckner had to let the Viking go. From this point, he knew it was a matter of time until his cover was blown. So von Luckner offloaded all his prisoners onto another captured ship and made a run for it. Nine days later, on the 31st of March 1917, those prisoners arrived in Rio de Janeiro and the news was out. A new German raider slipping past the British warships on guard in the North Sea has reached the South Atlantic and sent 11 merchantmen to the bottom. According to survivors from the sunken vessels, the raider is the Zedler, a formidably armed craft. The papers went on to give all the details about the Zedler's experience. Armed with that information, three British warships steamed south to cut off its escape. They knew there was only one way the Zayadla could go, around Cape Horn, the southern tip of South America, which marks the divide between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Going around Cape Horn is absolutely no fun in a um, tall ship, particularly in that direction because you're going against the prevailing wind. You often have to beat back and forth for weeks on end, so they, they thought they had a chance of getting him, quite rightly. There was a bit of cat and mouse there, but they they didn't manage to catch him, so he, he sort of snuck through the net, basically. So now von Luckner and the Zeadler were in the Pacific. But from here on, their mission got a lot more difficult. It's not an easy hunting ground at all. Compared to the Atlantic, which is like a sort of motorway of ships going to and fro, it's not really like that in the Pacific and they, you can tell they, they start to lose focus. Von Luckner and his crew did all kinds of things to keep up morale. There's even one story they passed the time fishing for sharks using baited hand grenades. It sounds to me like they were all thoroughly bored. They've been at sea for months on end. They haven't landed anywhere. I imagine some of the discipline was starting to break down. The Zayadla did manage to capture three ships in the Pacific, all small American traders. Eventually, von Luckner decided they really just needed to take a break. They need fresh water, they need to, the men to wander around on land just for a while and just restock and take stock. The boat's just in bad shape by now, so it, it needs the whole underside scraping. So they head for an island called Mapelia. Mapelia is one of the islands of French Polynesia. It's one of those classic Pacific atolls, a big ring of beautiful white sand and palm trees surrounded by a coral reef with a shallow lagoon in the middle. These kind of islands look really beautiful, but they can be deceptively dangerous, especially for old sailing ships like the Zayadla. 
Von Luckner anchored his ship near a channel which linked the lagoon with the open ocean. He took the ship's boat to shore with a bunch of crew to have a picnic. It was the first time any of them had stood on solid land in more than a year. But then, von Luckner says they noticed something strange out on the horizon. A weird swell out in the ocean. Initially, we assumed it was a, a mirage. After a time, we noticed how this swelling was growing closer and closer, getting higher and higher the nearer it came. It was a tidal wave which had been caused by an undersea earthquake. The wave raged up, grabbed our ship from underneath, lifted it up and crashed it down on the coral reef. The mast, the crown of the ship, collapsed into pieces, big blocks of coral weighing a hundred pounds, and as big as barrels had broken off the reef and were thrown into the ship like grenades. And then the tidal wave would pass away. There was our proud Zeadler, smashed to pieces, reduced to a wreck on the coral reef. Yeah. So, if you were finding all that about a tidal wave a bit hard to believe, there is another story of what happened to the Zayadla. I mean, the Pacific is a terrible place to have a tall ship. I mean, they're really, really difficult. Really strong currents, not very good anchorages, poor shelter. So, in these challenging conditions, von Luckner might have been looking for some advice from an expert in Pacific sailing. And luckily, he had three experts on board the captains of the American ships he'd captured. I think it was a, an issue of trust because he saw them as his friends, really. But, I mean, they were only his friends so far. He said, you know, he anchored the Sea Adler off this coral atoll, outside of it, and then sort of tied the stern to the coral atoll. So now we've got the Zayadla tied to the coral reef with some cables. The crew then hoist the sail so the offshore wind would stop the ship being washed onto the reef by waves. This seemed like a good enough solution to von Luckner, but just to be sure, he asked the three American captains whether this seemed like a good idea to them. And they said, oh yeah, that's absolutely fine. You know, that's that's how we always do it. But they were lying. A couple of them said, you know, I knew from the moment he asked me that and then followed our advice that the ship was doomed. So, yeah, he was basically conned by them. In reality, these American captains knew that winds and currents can change very quickly in the Pacific. And that's exactly what happened. The wind swapped direction and the Zayadla smashed directly into the reef it was anchored to. I should say there are a few different accounts of how the Zayadla was wrecked. We've got von Luckner's story about a tidal wave, there's those American captains who said they tricked him, there are also a few other stories blaming a change in the sea currents or a mistaken order from one of the ship's officers. Anyway, however this wreck happened, von Luckner and his crew were stranded, and he basically had two options of what to do next. Option one, wait a few months for a trading ship to swing by the island and then surrender. There was plenty of food and water on Malpelia, so they could afford to wait. Then there's option two. 
take the ship's small boat, sail 300 miles to the Cook Islands, find a bigger ship to hijack, come back and pick up the rest of the crew, then resume their mission hunting trading ships across the Pacific. Von Luckner decides to go with option two. Here's Professor James Bade again. That's an incredibly long journey across the Pacific in terrible conditions. The people on, on Mopelia were expecting never to see them again for that very reason, because they'd set out in such treacherous conditions. This trip was insanely dangerous. The boat was tiny, about 10 metres long, and it wasn't made for the open sea. They had to rig up some extra canvas around the side to stop it being swamped by waves. Plus, even after braving the open sea and arriving in the Cook Islands, von Luckner had to convince the locals that he and his crew were not, in fact, members of the German Navy looking for a ship to steal. No, no, no. They were a group of Dutch-American adventurers who decided to sail around the world for a bet. They were generally met by some sort of official who'd be like, who are you and what are you doing? And sometimes they were sort of kind enough to turn a blind eye and occasionally they were suspicious enough that von Luckner and his crew had to get get off there pretty quick. So, yeah, they keep getting sort of stopped and interrogated and hurrying on until they get to Fiji. And by this point, they've gone, I mean, over 2,000 miles in a totally unsuitable boat. So it's, it's, it's an epic voyage by, by any measure uh, on its own. And yet they're just doing it as a sort of bit of a side adventure, really. But this side adventure finally came to an end in Fiji. A local sailor was so suspicious of these supposed Dutch-American adventurers that he alerted the local authorities. A group of Fijian police headed off to arrest von Luckner, but awkwardly they only had one revolver between them. The rest of the officers just stuffed beer bottles into their pockets to make it look like they were armed. Luckily for the Fijian police, von Luckner fell for their bluff and surrendered. Another slightly embarrassing chapter of von Luckner's adventure, given he and his crew had several rifles, hand grenades and a machine gun. Yeah, I think they just got confused. Well, I imagine they were on edge. Um, You know, they they must have been absolutely worn out because they'd done this ridiculous trip. So they surrender without a shot being fired and and that's that's sort of, uh, well, that should be where the story ends. Fiji wasn't really set up to hold prisoners of war, so the Germans were sent to New Zealand instead. They arrived in Auckland on October 7th, 1917. Von Luckner and his second-in-command were taken to Motuihe Island, while the other three men went to Soames Island. It would have been pretty easy for von Luckner to just chill out in Motuihe for the rest of the war. As we mentioned at the start of this episode, it was a pretty sweet spot to be a prisoner. But, uh... He couldn't help himself, he still wanted more adventures. Von Luckner quickly discovered that some of the other internees of Motuihe had already been plotting an escape. A group of young Navy cadets had been captured in German Samoa. These guys had managed to build their own boat, which they hid in a cave on the island. Unfortunately, it was destroyed in a landslide before Von Luckner arrived. Even more importantly, these cadets had built a sextant a critical piece of equipment for navigating across the open ocean. Von Luckner and his second-in-command took over leadership of these cadets and doubled down on their efforts to escape. (laughs) 
some of the details of this escape were just ridiculous. Like, they managed to slaughter and preserve 40 chickens for food. The excuse was they'd all died of avian flu. They managed to buy gunpowder from a local farmer to make into makeshift grenades. They convinced Colonel Turner to let them make a German flag and realistic-looking fake weapons with the excuse they wanted to put on a Christmas play about the Battle of Jutland. Turner even ignored an anonymous note which warned him some of the men were planning an escape. Von Luckner himself later wrote, It seemed almost inconceivable how the distrust of the New Zealanders was eclipsed. They trusted me with the most incredible pranks. And so, on December 13th, von Luckner and his comrades put their plan into action. They cut the phone line to the mainland, smashed up the only other boat on the island, jumped aboard the Pearl, and sailed off into the Hauraki Gulf. Meanwhile, Colonel Turner was left holding the can for what probably rates as the most embarrassing prison break in New Zealand history. Here's James Bade again. Someone suggested that he was like the old woman in the shoe and just didn't know what to do and had so many bosses he didn't know what to do. Mm. Uh, the other thing you'll have to bear in mind, though, is this is, it was 1917 and um, most New Zealanders probably would have thought that any military that were left in New Zealand were no good. In other words, anyone that was any good would be overseas fighting or involved, involved in the war. Colonel Turner later faced a court-martial over von Luckner's escape, and it basically ruined his career. But you do kind of have to feel sorry for him. Like we said right at the start, this wasn't a prison camp. This was an internment camp. Many of the people held there were actually New Zealand citizens of German descent. The vast majority of these people weren't an escape risk. In fact, they were kind of being held in Motuihe for their own protection. The propaganda against Germans was so intense that New Zealand and a lot of other allied nations sometimes saw mob violence against people with German heritage. And while von Luckner was a different sort of prisoner, Turner still felt that he could be trusted. He even said to von Luckner at one stage, You won't run away, will you? If you do, I'll lose my job. That might seem naive by today's standards, but it wasn't that unusual for the time. Before World War I, it was pretty common to see captured military officers released on parole. Basically, they got to go home so long as they promised not to take part in the war from then on. Also, this wasn't all about Turner. Remember earlier we mentioned that von Luckner and his mates had been bouncing around from island to island in the Pacific after leaving Malpelia? Well, New Zealand officials were in charge of a lot of those islands, and several of them had missed opportunities to capture von Luckner much earlier. He got to a New Zealand territory called Atiu, and after that went on to Aitutaki. And neither of the New Zealand administrators recognised him as a German. Or if they did recognise him as a German, they didn't want to admit that he might have been because they were rather scared that he might have some uh, guns on board and they wouldn't know what to do about it. And the lost opportunity, that was absolutely shocking. They just let him go. Anyway, back to the story. The day after the escape, the Hauraki Gulf was swarming with boats looking for the Germans, but they were long gone. 
they made it to the Coromandel Peninsula and hunkered down, waiting for a likely-looking ship to cross their path. The victim was the Moor, a lumber transport ship carrying Cody logs from Todonga Port. And I just want to pause for a second and think about what happens next from the perspective of the Moor's crew, which included a 12-year-old boy who was the captain's son. For most Kiwis, this war was something happening a very, very long way away, literally the other side of the world. Imagine how shocked this crew would have been when a group of Germans jumped over the rail carrying a sword, a German flag, a couple of hand grenades, and told them they were now prisoners of Kaiser Wilhelm II. It was particularly terrifying for the boy, for the son, you know. I think he was a 12-year-old at the time. And because of all the propaganda that he'd been given about Germans and what Germans do, Germans eat children, by the way, Um, and he didn't trust them with any any, uh, food that they offered him either until one of them said, all right, I'll eat this chocolate biscuit, which was a chocolate finger, which you can still buy, (laughs) uh, New Zealand specialty. I'll eat this chocolate finger with you and gave him half and he ate half. And then then after that, they they realised, well, the boy realised they must be okay after all. Von Luckner used his classic von Lucknery charm to win over the rest of the Moors crew. The captain later described him as, and I quote, a good sport. But von Luckner was racing against the clock. Another ship had seen the Moor being captured and raised the alarm. Unfortunately for the Germans, the Moor wasn't a very fast boat. It was built for carrying Cody logs, not outrunning the New Zealand Navy. They made it as far as Raoul Island in the Kermadec Arc before they were overtaken by a New Zealand steamship called the Iris and forced to surrender. As he was taken back into captivity, von Luckner remarked, You left the door open. You cannot blame me for walking out. So, after nine days on the run, the Germans were shipped back to Aotearoa and locked up at a prison camp on Ripapa Island in Littleton Harbour. But that's not the end of von Luckner's story. Even after escaping prison once, he managed to sweet-talk the local authorities. He convinced the Minister of Defence, Sir James Allen, to supply him with free whisky and move him back to Motuike after he complained about the cold conditions at Ripapa Island. Fonlukna also seems to have befriended the Kingitanga leader, Tipuia Herangi, who'd strongly opposed the conscription of Waikato Māori to fight in the war. After the war ended and von Luckner was boarding a ship to return to Germany from Wellington, a lone woman stepped up and presented him with a bouquet of flowers. This kind of positive feeling wasn't universal. There were plenty of newspaper accounts which criticised von Luckner. I found one article which said a group of returned servicemen tried to destroy a photo of him in a shop window on Shortland Street. But in the context of the time, he got a very easy ride. Anti-German hysteria reached ridiculous levels during the war. Kiwis with German heritage were harassed and imprisoned, their businesses were looted and vandalised, and von Luckner seems to have breezed through all of this on charm alone. 
that was the big contradiction that really made me start researching this, mm. because how on earth could that have happened? Yeah. And, uh, and it did. And uh, he loved New Zealand is the other thing. Um, yeah, why? He's looking forward to coming that, back. That was, my, that was sort of my I, I don't know quite why he felt this affinity. Uh, I think anyone that spent any time on Motorway here would love New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> to a certain extent, he was treated very well, wasn't he? If you, think, yeah. if you think about it. I mean, he was put in jail for a very short time. But uh, all the people that came in touch with him uh, really, really respected him. Von Luckner went home to Germany in mid-1919, and that same year he worked with an American journalist to publish his memoir, Pirate Von Luckner. Why? Well, for one thing, he and most other Germans were desperate for overseas cash. Inflation was galloping. This is quite literally the case, that if you went into a pub and then um, paid for a glass of beer, you would buy two or three glasses of beer, because by the time you got to your second glass of beer, it would have doubled in price, and they just had no money. People were in terrible poverty, and this particularly applied to people who'd come from the Navy who had no jobs. And so, we, sorry, we should say the reason that naval officers had no jobs is because basically the entire German Navy was disestablished that's after exactly World right. War I. No army, no Navy, no Air Force, no nothing. Von Luckner's book was insanely popular. Like, here's how the New Zealand Herald wrote about it after it was released here. The personal narrative of Felix von Luckner, the German pirate, the first portion of which was published in last week's Observer, created a sensational demand. The continuation of the story will be printed from week to week and it's urged upon readers and agents to order supplies early so that none be disappointed. If you ask me, I think part of the reason von Luckner's story became so popular is that it felt like a ray of sunshine in a very dark time. Most of the stories which came out of that war were horrific. I mean, just pick up a soldier's diary from the Western Front or from Gallipoli. Now, compare that to the story of von Luckner and the Zayadla. There's heroism, there's chivalry, there's adventure, there's mercy. I mean, admittedly, there's also a bunch of exaggerations and straight-up fantasies, that tidal wave, for instance. But it played well with readers, and von Luckner capitalised on all of this. They went to the United States, and they went on lecture tours, and they made a lot of money that way. That sort of went, it went on for several years, really, so he did, he did very well out of that. But this reputation also made von Luckner useful. By the late 1930s, the Nazis had risen to power in Germany. The Nazi propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, was on the lookout for opportunities to distract the world from the atrocities they were committing. So Goebbels personally helped fund von Luckner to take a world tour as a sort of PR stunt for Nazi Germany. They saw his potential as a sort of good news story about Germans, so they immediately seized on that. And von Luckner was... Uh, he was an opportunist too, so he sort of managed to negotiate a free boat out of them, essentially, in a world tour. So, so they loaded him up with all these pamphlets and told him to go out and spread the word about how great German, you know, national socialism was. And um, he didn't do a very good job, essentially. <laughs> yeah. For one thing, von Luchten made sure those Nazi propaganda books, which were loaded onto a ship, never made it to their intended destinations. As soon as they got to the Panama Canal, the crew was given instructions to throw them all overboard. Mm. So that was, as far as he was concerned, it was, from then on, it was really a, a private cruise. 
The thing is, von Luckner seems to only have ever had lukewarm feelings about the Nazis at best. But that was still enough to get him in trouble when his tour reached New Zealand in 1938. He was asked how he felt about Hitler, and he, he said he had the greatest respect for Hitler. Unfortunately for him, that was just the time when the Nazi invasion of of uh, Austria was starting, and uh, that hogged all the headlines, and then people were saying, von Luckner says he respects Hitler, yet this is what Hitler is doing. Look, look what he's doing to the Jews in Austria. Mm. There was a lot of contradictory information then as he tried to somehow uh, make himself look... Um, more amenable to whoever it was who was speaking to him. So there were lots of interviews in which he really contradicted himself Mm. and lots of interviews in which it seemed that he wasn't quite towing the Nazi line. Von Luckner turned out to be a pretty terrible propaganda agent. He made all kinds of unhelpful and undiplomatic comments on his tour, including saying that Japan should work with Germany to invade Soviet Russia. This was right at the time the Nazis were trying to convince the Russians to maintain a non-aggression pact. And that wasn't the only drama on this trip. Von Luckner also got into a fistfight with one of his crew, who later turned out to be a member of the Gestapo. This guy had been sent on the trip undercover to keep an eye on von Luckner, and as you might imagine, his report back to Nazi HQ didn't exactly paint von Luckner in the best light. So when he got back to Germany after that trip, um, he was hauled before a special court which had been convened by Hitler himself. He was asked to, to justify what he'd done, and they found that he couldn't justify what he'd done, and he was then all his books from then on were banned mm. and any public appearances by von Luckner uh, were banned and, and that, was, that applied right through, uh, right through the Second World War till the end of the Nazi time. If von Luckner ever had been a Nazi sympathiser, this incident turned him totally against the regime. We don't have too many stories from this period of his life, but there are a couple of snapshots. Like one time, he saved the life of a Jewish woman in Berlin by giving her the passport of another dead German so she could evade the Gestapo. And late in the war, he snuck through the lines of German troops to reach US forces and negotiated the surrender of his hometown in Halle. And uh, he apparently talked to them three days uh, without any interruption. Uh, a lot of alcohol as well. <laughs> and... Uh, and they eventually said, all right, we will leave Halle alone. So that's the reason why Halle is one of the very few cities, I think there's only three German cities that were not destroyed uh, during World War Two. On a, on a personal note, when I was studying in uh, Europe in the 1970s, um, mm. Halle was the East German city that I liked the most, and I had no idea at the time. That was because... It had never been destroyed. All the others, of course, <laughs> had been destroyed during the war. Yeah. Halle was a beautiful city, an absolutely lovely place, and I had no idea at the time. The that was because no, that was yeah. because uh, it had been saved from destruction by the Americans by von Luckner. Yeah, yeah. Von Luckner didn't get much credit for saving his hometown. After the Americans left, it fell into the hands of the Red Army, and von Luckner was forced to flee. His aristocratic background didn't make him particularly popular with communist Russia. But he lived the rest of his life pretty comfortably as an exile in Sweden. He died in 1966, at the age of 84.
Oh, one last thing. You might be wondering what happened to the rest of von Luchner's crew and the prisoners, the ones he left behind on Mopelia. Well, eventually they spotted a trading ship sailing past the island and a group of crew launched a daring raid to capture it. Unfortunately, it turned out the ship was so riddled with borer that it leaked like a sieve and everyone was so convinced it would fall apart under their feet, they referred to it as, and I quote, a floating coffin. They made it to Rapa Nui, also known as Easter Island, before the ship completely disintegrated and from there they surrendered to Peruvian authorities. In the end, all of the Zayadla's crew made it through the war alive. They even had a reunion back in Germany after peace was declared. So, in a way, this is a story where pretty much everyone lives happily ever after. Sorry, I know it's not what you're expecting from Black Sheep. We'll make sure to do an extra miserable story for you next week to make up for it. Kakite. Very special thanks to our guests Sam Jefferson and James Bade. Both of their books are called The Sea Devil, and they're really worth a read if you want more detail on the story of Felix von Luckner. By the way, if you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe, and while you're at it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the most important thing you can do to help new people find this show. Um, and if you're in the hunt for a new podcast to listen to, try out The Service. It's all about a search to find the truth behind New Zealand's actions during the Cold War. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin, and our sound engineer is Phil Benge. We had voice acting help from Adam McCauley, Simon Dickinson and Paloma Magoni. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.